So welcome to our May episode of the Simulcast Journal Club podcast. And I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks. So another busy month on the Journal Club. And just by way of introduction, we've got a couple of papers this month. And I'd just highlight how well they complement our most recent episode, the Live, Die, Repeat episode that we did with Carmine Sunga and Daniel Cabrera. Continuing in that theme of thinking about our simulation formats and thinking about the debriefing that's associated with them and realizing that not always is it a 10 to 15 minute simulation followed by that 20 to 25 minute debrief. And we're really now looking at how does deliberate practice intersect with our simulation modalities. But before we get into the papers, uh, just a couple of bits of news. Uh, I've been traveling recently and I just wanted to say a thank you to some of the simulation colleagues that I visited in Denmark recently and to flag that we're going to have some upcoming pause and discuss episodes with Peter Diekman from the Copenhagen Academy of Medical Education and Simulation, uh, Christian Crow, the author of the Thinking on Your Feet debriefing paper, and uh, Sophie Munt, who I think has continued some of the work that we've been talking about in translating our debriefing work into the clinical environment. And the last thing I just want to mention in terms of news is just a reminder to everybody that the registrations are now open for the Australasian Simulation Congress. And just if you're looking for the website, it's www simulationcongress.com. The program's up there now, uh, includes the masterclasses and workshops, the plenary sessions and the keynote speakers, including Eduardo Salas and a number of others. So hop online, have a look at the program. And if you can make it to Sydney at the end of August, we'd love to see you at the Australasian Simulation Congress. And we'd particularly love to see you because the organisers have asked Simulcast to be an official broadcaster for them. So we'll be doing some interviews there. And although Jesse can't be with us. Ben and I will be walking around doing a few uh, short podcasts. Yeah, I'm pretty pumped. My uh, dream of becoming the David and Margaret of Simulation Journal Club is uh, finally happening. Finally, Ben. Finally. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, did you want to uh, introduce the papers that we had this month and uh, some of the discussion that's gone along with them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we haven't done this before, but I really felt that these two papers complement each other so beautifully that I couldn't resist trying to have two papers this month. So the first one uh, is a fairly classic paper from 2014 called Pediatric Resus Resident Resuscitation Skills Improve After Rapid Cycle Deliberate Practice Training. And it's by Betsy Hunt et al. And it was published in the Journal of Resuscitation in 2014. Uh, and then we followed that up with another article called Structuring Feedback and Debriefing to Achieve Mastery Learning Goals. And that was by Walter Epic et al. Uh, and published in uh, Academic Medicine in 2015. And they're a beautiful kind of pigeon pair uh, with the first one kind of introducing important data about why you might use this technique. Uh, and then Walter kind of fleshes that out and, and teaches you how to do it a bit more effectively. So to summarize the articles, uh, the first one by Betsy Hunt um, introduces uh, a new skills teaching curriculum style, which is called rapid cycle deliberate practice. And they call it that because it primarily involves cycling between deliberate practice and then going to directed feedback and then going back to deliberate practice. And they define three fundamental principles in that, which is one, maximizing the time that learners spend in deliberate practice by offering multiple opportunities to do it right. 
Two is that the faculty provision uh, or the faculty provides specific evidence or expert-based solutions for common problems. And then three, to explicitly foster psychological safety so that learners can learn to em embrace that very direct feedback in that coaching style scenario. So they designed a curriculum that emphasized the first five minutes of an in-hospital cardiac arrest, um, which is what they wanted their pediatric residents to improve on while they were waiting for the ICU team to arrive. And they scaffolded, uh, scaffolded that learning onto previous BLS and PALS training. So what they did was make a monthly just-in-time training session for residents who were about to go on to the uh, medical emergency teams that included two hours of rapid cycle deliberate practice involving five different scenarios that covered the primary causes of paediatric cardiac arrest. And the rapid cycle structure starts with kind of an initial uninterrupted scenario was a bit of a needs assessment to see where the residents were going. Uh, and then that's followed by the instructors gradually raising their expectations and sharing performance data, quantifying the breach standards and providing solution oriented micro debriefs during the scenarios. And when an error occurred, instructors would sometimes pause the scenario and ask them to just pause, rewind 10 seconds and try it again. And then they aimed after that for some reinforcement with an insight to unannounced mock code in the weeks after monthly training. And after designing the curriculum, uh, they then tested its ability to improve performance on key resuscitation quality markers when compared to the baseline pre-intervention cohort. And they wanted to register also that there was a measurable improvement between first and third year paediatric residents, which they weren't actually getting in their previous traditional training. And when they looked at their new metrics in simulated resuscitation, things had significantly improved, including less time to chest compressions, decreased time to defibrillation, and less pre-shock pause times. And they also noted a dose response with the second and third year residents showing improvement, more improvement over the interns. Well, I think one of the things this paper does is really shows us how to find some process measures for performance. And I think when you look at those things, you realise just what an intensive process this study was. And I, I suppose that's both its benefit, but also its downside. I think it would be hard for many of us to replicate the sheer intensity of some of the things that people did along these lines. Mm. But at the same time, I think the fact that Betsy Hunt and her colleagues were able to gives us some guidance that perhaps we couldn't actually find benefit for in our own institutions, but because she's done it on this scale, it provides some guidance for us. So then moving into the second article, which is called Structuring Feedback and Debriefing to Achieve Mastery Learning Goals, if Betsy's paper kind of provided motivation to implement rapid cycle within your practice, then uh, Epic's paper really provides more detail and advice regarding how to design and implement the feedback and debriefing components of deliberate practice-based educational interventions. So it really helps you flesh out how to do it if that first paper motiv motivates you to try it. They further explore the principles that were outlined by Betsy by describing strategies to establish a supportive yet challenging learning environment, how to mac maximize opportunities for rapid cycle with feedback and reflection during debriefing, and they describe the role of within event micro debriefing. And they really highlight as well the importance of establishing a safe container for learning in the rapid cycle environment, which is quite different to how you might do it in your traditional 20-minute simulations where you might provide a big pre-brief at the start. But the focus has to be very specifically preparing your learners for being in this kind of almost like you're being coached like world-class athletes, that you're going to be put through the ringer a bit, that it's going to be repeated over and over. Uh, and it's a very different set of expectations that you've got to make them feel comfortable for. 
They also mention the importance of encouraging peer feedback, so not just enabling the instructors to be the experts who are holding all the cards, but getting those who are participating within the resuscitation to be able to give feedback to each other and, and critique what they found effective and not effective about each other's performance. So the article then outlines some case studies regarding ACLS and um, PALS resuscitation training in order to flesh out those examples of micro debriefing in the moment rather than interrupting the flow of the scenario like we traditionally would do even if we were doing pause and discuss. And they give some examples of questions to pose to learners to help facilitate peer-to-peer -peer feedback such as um, a question like when the skill is performed correctly, what characterises effective performance? Yeah, yet again, I think uh, anything Walter and Adam do seems to have quality. But I think it, it's good because it delved into a little more detail about what actually happened in terms of the debriefer's role. And I think this idea about standing behind the team and giving them that coaching type role and doing these uh, micro debriefings are probably novel for some people and yet at the same time it's probably where many of us actually started in simulation where we were just standing around a mannequin and essentially mm. talking through the scenario and one thing I just highlight in this article that is worth looking at for people is the figure one which gives us a nice framework which sort of looks at the source of feedback the timing of feedback as well as then the debriefing form and sort of gives us a little sense of how does this all fit together? When do we choose a particular approach and how do, what kind of impact is it going to have? Not just think. So I think for me, this really fleshed out what had actually happened in the deep, connects that for us with some educational framework, some pedagogical best practice. So we start to understand why things work, not just think that's a cool idea, let's have a go at it. This idea about giving up some of your long debriefing for an opportunity to practice again. Mm. And to my mind, certain scenarios and for certain skill sets, this is just makes so much sense. I guess to summarise those comments, I kind of picked three themes as I usually do. And the main themes being one, that the concept and execution of our rapid cycle is it's not as well dispersed into the simulation community as advocacy and inquiry. And I think uh, some learners such as myself um, and a couple other ones like Zeneth sort of expressed uh, a bit of lack of familiarity about the technique in that sometimes maybe they'd stumbled into it a little bit by doing some sim wars stuff um, but hadn't read as much about it. We then talked about the fact that rapid cycle is definitely best suited to situations where industry standards are clearly defined. And I think you put it nicely when you said, like all mastery learning approaches, this really suits those skills and performance where the desired performance can be well described. There's minimal subjectivity. Um, in deciding whether learners have achieved it or not. So BLS and resuscitation is a perfect subject. And then Ben Lawton kind of contextualized that a little bit to current BLS mandatory competency testing, uh, which I found really interesting because he argued that, you know, a mastery learning approach where everybody passes, but you just vary in the time that you take to get there seems conceptually much more appropriate in terms of what we offer our learners and their patients uh, rather than what we currently do, which is stress everybody out about some test at the end of the uh, education day that they've got to the point where they're not necessarily concentrating on learning anything because they're too busy worried about getting the test. And then finally, we talked about the fact that rapid cycle really highlights the importance of avoiding a one-size-fits-all approach to debriefing. And at the end of the month, um, 
was quite pleasantly thrilled to see uh, Walter join the discussion and he, he dropped a pretty huge post on there. And he provided his own reflections regarding the importance of having that diverse tool belt, tool belt of debriefing techniques. And I'm just going to read out a couple of quotes that he wrote. So one was that he said, look, our field desperately needs a more nuanced understanding of how to align intended learning outcomes with simulation slash debriefing strategy. And in my mind, we're only beginning to understand how to dose each of the educational strategies that Adam and I outline in our Pearls framework. Yeah, I think you've picked out nicely the themes there, Ben, and, and I agree it was a really interesting discussion. So I think this idea of coaching from the sidelines suits many things. Yeah, I certainly know when I started uh, sort of running simulations, I was obsessed with not interrupting the reality of it rather than focusing on what my educational outcome was. And it's been really freeing reading these papers and realizing I've really got to bring it back to less about the scenario and what am I actually trying to get out of this exercise for my team. Yeah, I think you've put that very nicely, which is not surprising. Uh, I was with a few of the folks who contributed to that discussion today at a simulation debriefing workshop, and they said one of the great things about Ben is that he just explains things so well. So there you go. Oh, that was nice. Cheers. And I guess in terms Absolutely. of explaining things so well, I might also uh, just mention uh, Dr. Jared Kutzen, who was our expert commenter of the month. Um, so he's the director of education at New York Presbyterian Hudson Valley Hospital, and he was previously the director of sim training at uh, Winthrop University Hospital and St. Barnabas Medical Center in New Jersey. Uh, and so his expert commentary is featured in our PDF that we'll upload at the end of the month when we publish this uh, podcast. And it's a really fascinating um, comment that he's made, and he takes us on a bit of a history of the evolution of debriefing and simulation education. And he really acknowledges that inherent friction between switching between rapid cycle and AI. He mentions at one point, so rapid cycle deliberate practice is not just a debriefing methodology, but rather it's a conscious curriculum choice that an educator makes. And when designing an educational program, the educator must decide whether they want to focus on understanding why the learners took to certain actions in the hopes of correcting the underlying deficits or whether the skills are so vitally important that instead the actions must be performed correctly, regardless of whether the learner understands why they are taking those actions or not. Very nicely put, I think. Mm. And uh, I agree, it's definitely worth a read of Jared's contribution there. Uh, so what I might do is run through a couple of other recent journal articles before we give a preview of next month's papers. Uh, yeah, so the first article that I chose was entitled Regular in Situ Simulation of Pediatric Medical Emergency Team Leads to Sustained Improvements in Hospital Response to Deteriorating Patients, Improved Outcomes in Intensive Care and Financial Savings. And this is an article by Ulf Thielen et al. in Resuscitation for April 2017 and obviously didn't win any prizes for the shortest title but the title does describe what they actually did and I thought it was worth highlighting a couple of things in particular that simulation work does happen in journals like resuscitation it's not just in specific sim journals and the reason I chose this is because I think it is a natural segue from the Betsy Hunt work which proves improved performance on the part of the healthcare providers as a result of training whereas this paper seeks to examine questions of whether there are improved patient and system outcomes as a result of that kind of training. So it's a fairly detailed paper, but I'll give a little bit of a summary. Essentially, what this group did was looked at the impact of the introduction of two things, a pediatric medical emergency team, 
associated with a weekly in-situ simulation team training. And you can read in the paper what that looked like, but it's pretty much what you would imagine. They had a multidisciplinary paediatric emergency team dedicated, and interestingly, they didn't have one before that. And then in addition to that, they started running them through scenarios each week uh, that would obviously focus on some of those teamwork issues as well as the content issues that were inherent in a number of the scenarios that they came across, such as hypoxia, cardiac arrhythmias, altered level of consciousness, etc. Unlike the Betsy Hunt paper, this paper had some service level outcomes and they included time to recognition of deteriorating patients, how often these patients were reviewed by consultants and by that they mean by senior parts of the service, the time it took to escalate to intensive care as well as the likelihood of paediatric intensive care admission and paediatric intensive care unit bed days. And then they sought to do a cost analysis of the training versus what they felt they saved in the patient outcomes. One year prior to the training, one year after the training, and then three years after the training to see if there was reduction in impact. And essentially they got good outcomes to summarize a whole lot of data. And they found that there was improvement in pretty much all of those metrics. So decreased time to recognize deteriorating patients, um, increased review by consultants, decreased time to escalate to the ICU, reductions in actual admissions because people saw them earlier and either did something about it and they didn't need to go to ICU, and reductions in the number of PICU bed days for the patients who did end up going there. And they did a cost analysis which uh, suggested enormous amounts of savings on the basis that although the training was expensive, and they give the numbers there and it's in the sort of tens of thousands um, of euros, uh, but there's hundreds of thousands in in terms of reduction in the PICU bed days. So I think, uh, as I said, good paper. I think it's, they've probably overreached slightly because in their discussion, they sort of say, so there, look, weekly in situ training is the answer and this will improve everything in your hospital. Well, they didn't quite go that far. But I think what this misses is that they did two things at once. And one was introduce the team, which obviously would have increased the interest in identifying and responding to that clinical deterioration and the training. And they didn't separate the two out. Now, I actually think that's a good real world practice and arguably who cares, except that one might be much more beneficial than the other. And it might just be that making a system change had far more impact than the training or vice versa. So I think it's a little hard to claim which part of that had the impact, but there's no doubt they had an improvement in what they did. They also went on to say that the team training and the human factors were important and they felt that the things that uh, seemed to have particular importance were training the faculty, the fact that the training was regular, the idea that actual outcomes from real patient cases was used to inform the training and no surprise and of course very heartening for someone like myself, uh, building relationships across the teams and between the interfaces of different team members was was vitally important. And I'm sure that that's true. I think the cost analysis is a little bit tricky. I like it when people seek to do that, but I think we've got to be very careful about um, identifying those things. Because as we know, unless you actually close PICU beds, you don't necessarily make cost savings. What happens is just other patients go into those beds and maybe of a lower acuity if you've got them. So I think it's really hard to claim that as a 
apples versus apples. I don't think it is quite, but at the same time, I think we've got to be asking those questions. If training costs a certain amount, what are we getting back in terms of our bang for buck for the patients? So again, I think congratulations to the authors for doing something actually pretty difficult. And I think a logical idea about then moving on to look at how do the practitioner's performance actually impact on the patient outcomes. Well, I just wrote one line in my notes for this paper, which was that this article is going to get cited on a lot of funding applications. Thought it, it, it did kind of surprise me when I read this paper that there was this clear link between instituting kind of a medical emergency team and then instituting that the education around it. And I felt that there were some bold calls made about the education that maybe were tied into the actual emergency team itself. Um, but I thought it was really exciting and interesting to read. And then the last paper that I chose is probably something that may be less familiar to many of our listeners and certainly less familiar to me, but I think an important emerging trend in simulation in regards to uh, virtual patients and screen-based simulations. And so this is a paper that has been in simulation in healthcare just in the last month. And the title of it is Developing a Conversational Virtual Standardised Patient to Enable Students to Practice History-Taking Skills. And this is by Kellen Macher and colleagues, uh, and it was based at Ohio State University, as I said, May 2017. This really had some interesting things. And so the concept of a virtual standardised patient is that you look at a screen, there's an avatar there in the form of a face or maybe a patient sitting on a chair, and they have a conversation with you and you can take a history from that patient. Now, I realise people might be at different levels of understanding of technology, but the technology used is this thing called natural language processing, whereby computers take a huge amount of data from conversations, they analyze it, they recognize the patterns where someone asks one thing and here's an answer. And if you put enough data into that computer, it can start to generate responses that would naturally occur when people ask a question. So if you've designed your script around chest pain and the doctor said something about tell me about your pain, then the natural language processing would generate a series of appropriate responses to that question, depending on what you're trying to generate. Now, again, I hasten to add, I'm certainly no expert on this, but in the paper, they do describe how that works. And they talk about the um, open source natural language processing engine chat script. And if you want to have a bit of a look at that, and I did, you can actually have a bit of a look at how to learn to build your own conversational bot using chat script. And in addition to what these avatars say, there's a bit of work done and there's some nice photographs in the paper of how the avatars look. This is still clunky, I think it's fair to say, but it's much better than it ever was. And it's got a range of emotions that you can see from neutral to happy to angry to sad to fearful, surprised. And there's certainly a step up, say, from the plastic mannequins that we have to deal with who've got no facial expressions. And so obviously the computer technology has got to the point, and it, a lot of it does come from film and television, where we can start to animate different kinds of other sources of history-taking feedback, which is what does the patient look like while I'm getting the data of what they're saying. So the authors essentially describe how they created these uh, virtual standardized patients, and then a series of medical students were run through and they report on uh, taking a focus history of a patient with back pain. And various things were built into that script and the students were asked to take a history. And what they used as their first outcome measure was 
how well did the virtual standardized patient do? So could they answer the questions that the student asked? Because this is primarily directed at this point as an opportunity for the medical students to practice taking the history. And the to cut a long story short, the virtual standardized patient performed pretty well. They could answer 83% of the questions asked. 10% they just kind of didn't answer them, 6% they said the wrong thing. So it's starting to get to a level where you can have a conversation with something like this and the students found it useful in terms of uh, being able to practice their history taking. This is the kind of technology that they use for the androids. And if you've seen the recent movie Passengers, the android at the bar, he's a classic example of natural language processing. So, Ben, I hope you run away and look at that uh, movie to understand this. Yeah, look, I... um. So I did animation before I did med school. So I was really excited about this technology and really interested to see what they were doing. Um, and I actually, I noticed that you mentioned that you found those sort of character designs clunky, but I actually quite liked it because I think it kind of avoids that uncanny valley problem where they look close enough to be real that you're a bit put off when they're not perfect. I found the pictures in the article really useful to get an idea of how it might work, but I really feel like this article needed a video attached to get an idea of how interacting with this virtual patient would really work. I really wanted to believe in the technology. I'm a little unclear if it's clinical use yet, and I get it that it's still in development, but I'm just, I hate to be a cynic, but I'm not sure there's a huge shortage of old people wanting to talk about their health problems. I get the appeal of like standardization and developing a consistent curriculum, but I'm concerned maybe sometimes technology isn't always the answer. Yeah, no, I think they're good points. And I think uh, you're right. Sometimes you've got to go on the journey with technology and it hasn't yet found its place. I think the authors were actually a little bit careful about that, to be honest, and saying it was not going to replace using standardized patients yeah. or real patients. And I think where they position it is that it's at the very early part of the learning cycle where people are still trying to get their patterns of questions question asking correct. And to be honest, I think the thing that they made allusion to, but which they didn't study, was its opportunity to act in reverse, which is assessing the learners by essentially analyzing the data in their question asking and in how they then move through the history taking and derive an accurate history. And I think arguably, this is the bit that we can make a little bit more scientific than those of us who've watched hundreds of Oscars and thought, that's pretty good. I'm not really sure why it wasn't great. I don't know, mm. six out of 10. Whereas I think this kind of thing has an opportunity, I don't think it's there yet, to start to analyze conversations in a way that we can start to even quantify a good history. Maybe not at the nuanced level, but I think at the basic level, um, that's where some of the opportunity lies. That's pretty interesting. A bit like you talk about sim being storytelling in a lot of ways and how powerful a memory trigger that is. In some ways, I could imagine sort of interacting with a virtual person would be fairly activating as well and unique, and it could be quite a powerful storytelling way of, of hammering down different differentials for, for early medical students and people at the start of their medical career. All right. Well, enough fun with virtual patients. Uh, ben, why don't we wrap up with you? Give us a little preview of what's uh, in store for June. Yeah, so look, looking ahead, the next two months, uh, I really want to focus about faculty development. Um, so this month, we're going to be looking at a piping hot off the press article from Simulation in Healthcare by uh, Cheng et al. And it's entitled Coaching the Debriefer, Peer Coaching to Improve Debriefing Quality in Simulation Programs, uh, which is currently up online in Simulation in Healthcare's uh, published ahead of print section. And it's really a call to arms for simulation educators to start having honest conversations with each other and then explores kind of some of the barriers about why we might 
might not always be able to give feedback to each other as well as we're comfortable giving feedback to our learners. I like it because that's a little bit meta. Um, we spend so much time trying to teach others, but you know, it's a lot harder to talk to your colleagues. And I certainly know so I was working with previously were really interested, even not in the simulation world, but about how to talk to their peers about improving their performance on the floor. Yeah, no, thank you. I think it's a fabulous choice and not a cultural norm, at least in most of the workplaces that I've worked in. And so to try and pick out how we start to make it a normal thing we do and then think about how we do it in a safe way, but in a way that enhances performance uh, will be very useful. Great. So invitation to everybody, get on the blog, uh, make some comments on there and uh, we'll wrap it up again in a month's time. So thanks again, Ben. Great. Thanks a lot.